Well, good morning. My name is uh, Gerald Von Traeger. My wife Kay and I have been attending uh, New Community since uh, <clears throat> about September. Uh, I'm a retired pastor, pastor for about 45 years, and, um, and so it's been really kind of odd and strange for me to be on the other side of the pulpit um, and, and learning how to, how to do all that. So um, it's been a joy to connect with many of you and share together. In fact, um, we just met Marlene uh, about two, three weeks ago and just had a great experience and meeting she and, and Blair and was looking forward to getting to know uh, her even better uh, throughout life. But uh, unfortunately, that'll have to wait until, until the kingdom. Uh, we look forward to, to that. <clears throat> My appreciation to Justin for allowing me to share and asking me to share and preach. Uh, this is the first time I've preached in 50 weeks, uh, which again is very strange for me. Uh, having preached for, you know, 40, 45 years. Um, and so it's a joy to share with you uh, this morning. Just a couple things about myself and my wife. Uh, my wife has macular degeneration. Uh, she does not see that clearly that well. Uh, her good eyes about 80-20 and her bad eyes about 100-120 or 80-120. And so uh, if, if you see Kay, if you know her and you're standing at a distance and you, you wave at her and she doesn't wave back, it's not that she's not friendly, she just can't see you. So just come up and say hi. I, on the other hand, uh, have tinnitus. I don't hear very well. So if you say something to me and I don't respond, just come up and say, hey, you know, uh, I'll, I'll probably respond that way. I, I'm still able to function quite well. But, you know, just those little light and momentary reflections that we have sharing together. But uh, we do appreciate uh, showing uh, together uh, with the Lord. I want to share a message with you today about two apparent impossibilities. Uh, it's found, as we've already talked about, in the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. Would you stand together with me in honor of God's inspired, inerrant, infallible, authoritative word? And what I'd like to do is to have you quote along with me Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. It should be on the screen, and so it simply goes uh, like this. Say it with me. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Well, Lord, thank you. What a beautiful picture of baptism, of a heart that has been transformed by the grace of Jesus Christ. Uh, Lord, help us all to take that mission uh, upon our hearts to share with others the good news of Christ so that others can come to know that, to see their eyes open to the glorious hope of the gospel and to be set on the road of purity uh, of what that means. Help us as we now listen to your spirit as he speaks to our hearts. Uh, in this message so that we will be able to uh, truly um, uh, just walk with you in, in the abundance of your word and to flourish in the way which you've intended for us to do. Uh, draw others to Christ today, we pray in Christ. Amen. You may be seated. I want you to know that I'm approaching uh, this beatitude as the most essential and the most significant of all the beatitudes. Uh, but let me be quick to say to you that if Justin would have asked me to preach on any of the other seven Beatitudes, I would also say to you that it is also the most important, also the most essential of the Beatitudes of which we would preach that day. Uh, they're just that important. Uh, as we've learned in this series already, we cannot pick and choose which Beatitudes we like and disregard the others. Uh, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Recently at our home church, uh, on our house church, um, we had a, a, an unveiling of a portrait that was done by Ken Grody uh, of another guy in our house church, Don Parvin. Uh, Don is the head of security uh, at Cedarville, and he was in his uniform. And, and I'm telling you, Ken just absolutely captured the, the beautiful picture of, of, 
of Don. And uh, it would have been so odd had he accentuated one part of his face uh, to the neglect of the others. But it was this beautiful, beautiful picture, this portrait. Well, that's what the Beatitudes are. They're a portrait of what a follower of Christ looks like. Therefore, to accentuate one and diminish the others would distort the whole. There's beauty, beauty, there's symmetry, there's interconnectedness among the eight Beatitudes. For example, as it pertains to this Beatitude, you cannot be poor in spirit without being pure in heart. You cannot mourn over your sins without a pure heart. You cannot be meek, hunger and thirst for righteousness, be merciful. You cannot be a peacemaker. You cannot be prepared to face persecution apart from having a pure heart. And as you know by now, that all eight Beatitudes are structured the same way. There is just simply a statement that is made, a truth statement that is made, and then it is followed by an outcome, a desired outcome. So here's the truth statement in Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart. Here's the outcome that's described, for they shall see God. Now, at first blush, this Beatitude presents what appears to be two impossibilities. Uh, the first impossibility is found in the truth statement, blessed are the pure in heart. My first reaction to that truth statement is that that seems absolutely impossible. Now, when Jesus says in the first beatitude, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, I can, I can relate to that very easily. I recognize how poor I am in spirit. When he says, blessed are those who mourn, I, I, I see that in my life. I mourn over my sin. But when he says, blessed are the pure in heart, I'm going, wait a second. I, I'm not sure that that's me. The word pure, catharsis in the Greek, simply means to be clean, to be clear, to be free from impurities, unstained. Purity is the quality of being faultless, uncompromised, unadulterated. Pure water is free from contamination. Pure gold is gold that has had the dross removed so that it's pure. Closely associated with purity is the topic of holiness. Which again, you cannot be holy apart from purity, and you cannot be pure apart from holiness. The two of them are interconnected. And holiness, as you know, is the standard that God calls us to be as His people. It was stated in the Old Testament, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 12, Be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. It's repeated in 1 Peter chapter 5, uh, verse 1, uh, chapter 1, verses 15 through 16. Just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do, for it is written, Be holy because I am holy. Holiness is the standard that God calls his people to. Therefore, we're not surprised to see that at the center of this portrait is this issue of purity and holiness that comprises the followers of Jesus Christ. And did you notice where Jesus puts the emphasis on purity? It's on the heart. Uh, again, I, I'm not a real big fan of using cliches because they minimize the weight of what the speaker is trying to communicate, but I'm going to throw caution to the wind. Hopefully that you'll know this phrase. I was surprised at the first service they didn't know this phrase, so I'll test you to see if you know this phrase. If you do, then you can complete this phrase with me. The heart of the matter is a... Oh, at least a few of you got it. It's a matter of the heart. So the heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. That's what Jesus is doing. He's focusing the attention upon our hearts. Now, as soon as we hear the word heart, we need to be careful that we interpret it correctly. In our modern Western world culture, we're used to thinking of heart strictly as kind of emotional. 
Uh, for example, we say, uh, when I'm with her, my heart has butterflies, or finding true love is, is someone who makes my heart skip a beat. Or we say, what you said to me crushed my heart. And we, we tend to associate heart with just the emotional side of our being. Scripture takes a different approach. Scripture uses heart as the totality, the essence, the sum of who you are. It involves everything about your life physically, spiritually, mentally, morally, volitionally, and also emotionally. That's why Solomon instructs us very wisely. Listen, Solomon would say to us, keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it springs the issues of life. Jesus here uses the word heart very deliberately and very strategically. See, it would have been one thing for him to say, blessed are the pure, and left it at that. But he says, blessed are the pure in heart. Had he just said, blessed are the pure, he would have created somewhat of a loophole, if you will. Here's what I mean by that. Many of us discipline ourselves from impure actions, uh, impure vices, and impure thoughts in our minds. And that's a good thing. But as a result, we can convince ourselves that we are more pure than we actually are. So when Jesus adds the prepositional phrase in heart to this beatitude, he raises the issue of purity to a whole different level. Those two words, in heart, move the focus from the outer visible sphere of what people see about us to the inward unseen sphere of what God knows about us. And here's where we begin to squirm. When we're confronted with what we know God sees in our hearts, our immediate and natural reaction is to feel uneasy. We, we can become guarded. We don't want some preacher, we don't want the Spirit of God poking around the wobbly walls that we have erected in our hearts to cover up our selfish motives, to conceal our secret sins, and to hide our impure thoughts. While no one else knows our true hearts, we know our true hearts. We're frightened at the prospect of being exposed. And so what we do is we work really hard to project an outward image that tries to convince ourselves, others, and God that we're actually more pure than we actually are. Now, full disclosure here, I want you to know something about the nature of my heart this morning. And my assumption is that your heart is just like mine, but I'll leave that judgment for you to make on your own. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, is an accurate assessment of the condition of my heart. Uh, Jeremiah says, My heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Uh, I agree with Martin Luther, the progenitor of the Protestant Reformation. He made a stunning declaration about his own heart. Uh, as you know, Martin Luther, who began the Protestant Reformation, which challenged the uh, the Catholic Church, he sent the 95 Theses and nailed them on the door of Wittenberg. Well, he was called into account for that, what was known as a papal bull, which was a charge against him for heresy that he was to uh, appear before the Diet of Worms in Germany. And that occurred on May 15th, uh, May 25th, 1521. As he was getting ready to go to that council, here's what Luther said about his heart. He said, I'm more afraid of my own heart than I am of the Pope and all of his cardinals. And that just really put it in perspective. And I'm going, that's, that's so true, is that our hearts need to be really taken care of carefully because they can deceive us so well. And we need to take a very, very careful look at our hearts. So 
My first reaction as I read this truth statement, blessed are the pure in heart, is like, man, I, I don't know. That, that just absolutely seems to be impossible. Here's the second apparent impossibility, and that is of seeing God. You recall Moses wanted to see God. He says in Exodus 33, Now, O God, show me your glory. Remember what God t- tells him in verse 20? You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Paul repeats the same reality in the benediction in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 15-17. through 17. He who is blessed and the only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, get this, whom no one has ever seen or can see. And then the Apostle Paul, Apostle John throws his weight to this argument in 1 John chapter 4, verse 12, no one has ever seen God. And so there are the two apparent impossibilities, having a pure heart and seeing God. And yet Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And so you look at that and you ponder that and you go, huh, is Jesus teaching something that is indeed impossible? Well, the straightforward answer to that question is yes. Yes, he is. Let me state it as clearly as I can. It is humanly impossible for us to be pure in heart and for us to see God and are on our own. The whole, the cold, stark reality is this, and there's no way to sugarcoat it. It's just this. We all know the truth. We all know the truth that we are not pure in our hearts. Furthermore, we realize that we can never do things in our life to make ourselves presentable before God. And therefore, we do not see God on a continual basis. And so what happens to that is simply this. We know that on some level, that the reason that we're not flourishing, the reason that we're not experiencing the blessed life has something to do with the impurity of our hearts and our inability to see God. Now, I say that not to shame you, not to call you out for being less than what God expects or what He demands, but I say that to encourage you. Now, you might be thinking, wait a second, encourage me? Really? You just said I'm not pure in heart and I don't have the ability to see God. So how can that be encouraging? Shouldn't I be massively discouraged? Well, the answer to that depends on how well you understand what Jesus teaches in this verse and on the understanding of the gospel. If you don't understand what Jesus is teaching in this beatitude, and if you don't have a good grasp on the gospel, yes, yes, you will be and should be massively discouraged. But when you understand what Jesus is teaching here and you possess a robust understanding of the gospel, you will discover there is hope for the impurity of your heart and your inability to see God. Uh, You'll know this verse very well, I'm sure. It simply comes to this. With man this is impossible, but with God what? All things are possible. And here's where the gospel Burst onto the scene and gives us hope to resolve the tension, to transform us so that we will flourish as God intends. The gospel makes possible what is apparently impossible. <clears throat> apart from the gospel, there can be no possibility of purity of heart. And apart from the gospel, there can be no possibility of seeing God. But thanks be to God, because through Jesus Christ, our hearts can be made pure and our eyes can be opened to the glory of God. And what I want to do is unpack this glorious truth 
with you. We start with two distinctions. The first distinction is this. Purity of heart does not mean sinlessness of life. We're not talking about a purity of your life where you, you have no sin or that you ever achieve a state in this world, in this life, that is totally separate from sin. First uh, John uh, first chapter 3, verse 8 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. That, that's not what Jesus is teaching here. That's not the objective of what Jesus is going after here. So it's not sinlessness of life. We're going to struggle with sin until the day that we pass and go into glory. Here's the second distinction, and that is that when Scripture uses the word purity or holiness, it speaks of it in three different dimensions, three different ways. The first is a holiness, a purity that only belongs to God alone, exclusively. Go to Isaiah chapter 6. You recall that the angels there in the beatific vision that Isaiah has of God there around the throne, he sees the seraphim flying around. They have six wings. Two, they cover their feet. Two, they fly around, and two, they cover their faces. <clears throat> the reason they cover their faces is because they cannot look upon the eternal holiness of God. Now, these are holy angels. They've never sinned. They themselves are holy, and yet they cover their faces because they are in the presence of the eternal God who is absolutely holy. And all they know to say is say it in triplicate, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. In other words, he has a holiness that is totally separate, totally distinct, totally other than what we will ever know or ever possess within our lives. The second way that purity and holiness is used is what Jesus refers to within our lives, that we will experience when we get to heaven. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, we, we know that when Christ appears, we will be like him. In the presence of Jesus, we will be holy. We will have a purity that is like pure gold. There will be no traces of sin when we're in the presence of Jesus. It will be glorious. Uh, we're not in heaven yet, are we? And that leads us to the third way that purity and holiness is used in Scripture. And this is where Jesus picks up this concept of purity here. It's in this third area. And there's a third area which simply is, is that there is a purity or a holiness that we are called to pursue now. And that's what Jesus is speaking of here in this sixth beatitude. Uh, the Puritan Thomas Watson describes this as a purity in a gospel sense. In other words, the Christian's purity in this life is like gold that is mixed with dross. In heaven, it'll be pure gold. But right now, it's gold that's mixed with dross. So how are we to respond to that? How are we to live in an impure world? Because all of us live there. Well, that's where Jesus comes in and points us in this beatitude to show us how we live in this impure world. Now, there's only one way. There's only one way in which we can be pure in this impure world. Uh, unfortunately, the church and mankind over time has developed other avenues to promote holiness. I just want to mention three of them to you, or four of them to you. Uh, and they're all self-effort. They're all non-gospel. They're all, in one sense, an unbiblical approach to make us feel better about our lives and to at least have some modicum of what they would say would be holiness. But it's not the way that God describes. We'll get there in just a moment. But here's the first one, and that's, that is uh, this concept of legalism. 
You're familiar with the Pharisees, so think Pharisees. This is where rules that promote outward appearance of holiness while ignoring the heart. It's where you try to quantify holiness. You set up box checks. You know, if I do this many different things, then it's going to be something that's going to produce holiness. Well, that's what was happening to the Pharisees. Jesus condemns them and says in Matthew chapter 15, verses 8 through 9, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Jesus goes on and tells them, what you first need to do, Pharisees, is clean the inside of the cup and not the outside of the cup. If you clean the inside of the cup, then the outside will be clean. You see, those who subscribe to legalism never truly flourish. They never truly are blessed because <clears throat> they're weighed down with all these rules and they're weighed down with all this. There's not a freedom that is there for us. In fact, Jesus came onto the scene. He was preaching the gospel, Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. He said that he had compassion on the people because they were distressed and dispirited. Why? Because Phariseeism had just sucked the very life out of the relationship with God and made it all about rules and following the rules. Because they thought the rules is the way that you find holiness. It's just the opposite. The second one's called libertarianism or antinomianism. Think modernity, this stage in which we're living right now in this world. The objective aspect of libertarianism rejects authority. There, there are no absolutes. Everything's, everything is relative. And so the objective authority of thus saith the Lord is replaced with the subjective opinion of, so what, what do you think about the passage? Here, here's, here's the other thing that happens in modernity. Purity and holiness are religious constructs, they say, that don't need to be followed. In fact, they need to be redefined. And so purity is redefined as being true to yourself. As long as you're true to self, then you're going to be blessed. You're going to, be, you're going to flourish. Well, the reality is we know that this doesn't work. That's not what Jesus is teaching here in this passage. Here's the third, and that's moralism, also known as moralistic therapeutic deism. Think of the vast majority of American churches. In 2018, there was a documentary that was produced called The American Gospel, and it chronicles how the church has taken the gospel and diluted it to make it all about ourselves. And therefore, what the moralism teaches is that God wants us to be good and nice to other people, to be fair as taught in Scripture, Good people go to heaven when they die. The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. This gave birth to the rise of how-to sermons in the churches. How to be a better husband, how to be a better, how to be a better wife, how, how, how to smile at life when life frowns on you. It's, it's all about how to, how you can, how you can do this moralistically and, and thereby have a better life. That's not what Jesus is teaching in this sixth beatitude. Uh, monasticism is the last one. Think monasteries. This is where you withdraw from the world so that you don't have the influences around the world so that you're able to pursue God and hopefully that's going to produce a sense of holiness and righteousness. The only problem with that is oftentimes people who are in monasteries are so, earthly, are so heavily minded they're not in earthly good. They never really come to the place of flourishing because they've disassociated themselves with the community around them in this world. And so they just never really flourish. So what we have to do is, is exercise discernment, reject pseudo approaches to holiness, and again, come back to the only way to be made holy, the only way to pursue purity, the only way to be enabled to see God is through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's it. It's through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's drill down on this for a few moments. Gospel purity. 
of what Thomas Watson had talked about. Two things to grasp. First of all, for gospel purity, the heart is pure. It's been made pure because it's been cleaned by God Himself. And secondly, a pure heart is an undivided heart. And so we're looking at a, at a, at a heart that's been cleansed by God and then a heart that is undivided, a heart that is singularly focused. So here's a clean heart. When the Spirit of God comes and convicts us of our sin, He comes and teaches us our need for salvation, just like, Tim, you experienced in life, and you came to see that, your need for Christ, and God just simply did a work in your life and transformed your heart by His grace. This is the fulfillment of Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 17, where it says, I will give them an undivided heart. I will put my spirit within them. I will remove the heart of stone, and I will give them a heart of flesh. And here's the good news. When that happens in salvation, here's what God does. Here's what God does in your life in salvation. First of all, it's a legal side of that. It's called justification. In salvation, God justifies you. What that means is, is that the moment you believe the gospel, repent of your sins, trust Christ to save you, God steps in, applies the blood of Jesus to your heart, and He pays the penalty of your sin and removes those, and you are justified now in the very presence of God. God looks at your heart as if you had not ever sinned. You are declared righteous, not based upon your merits, but based upon the merits of Jesus Christ. It's a legality of our sins that have been removed. It's, it's something which God did for us, and it's a one-time experience, never having to be repeated again. God sees our sins in the past, in the present, and also in the future, and they're all under the blood of Christ. Psalm 103, 12, He removes our sin as far as the east is from the west. Micah 7, 19, He casts all of our sins into the depths of the sea. Hebrews 8, 12, He remembers our sins no more. We are justified legally to stand in the presence of God because of what Christ Jesus has done for us. Here's the second thing that happens in salvation, God cleansing our hearts, and that's forgiveness. Forgiveness is just as spectacular as justification, but in quite a different way that it operates. Forgiveness is not legal, it's relational. It doesn't happen once, but it's ongoing. In other words, forgiveness involves reconciliation. Reconciliation is an accounting word. It says if there's a debit, then something has to happen in order for these two accounts to be reconciled. When we have been saved from our sin, God God saves us from the penalty of sin. He legally brings us into relationship with Him. But as we live, we, we still discover that we sin, and we, our, our relationship with God is, is broken. And so what, what Christ does consistently is He forgives us of our sins and brings us back into relationship with Him. We are found in this aspect of having this harmonious relationship with Christ based on what Christ has done for us again at the cross. And it's relational. He brings in there. Once we were God's enemy, now we're His friends. In Christ Jesus, God forgives all of our sins. We're no longer at a distance from Him, but He walks with us closely in a sweet relationship. So there's a legal aspect, there's a relational aspect, and now, thirdly, there's a personal aspect of what happens in our hearts. There's a personal dimension to this marvelous transformation that comes to the life of a Christian. This is what the sixth beatitude is about. This is where we live, the sixth beatitude. In Christ, God washes our hearts. He washes our lives, and He purifies us, and He cleanses us on an ongoing basis. We live in this impure world. Therefore, we pick up impurities. Even, 
you know, not consciously knowing what it is. We just are affected by that. If you go outside and look at my car, and my guess is yours is the same way after the little snow event we had yesterday. My car is filthy. I mean, my car has salt all over it. It is just incredible. So what I'm going to do probably tomorrow is I'm going to take my car and I'm going to wash it. And guess what? When I show up at church next week, uh, my car is going to be dirty. Why is it going to be dirty? Because that's just the nature of what a car experiences when it's on the road. Now, I'm not going to go out to Ryan Stover's farm and go plowing through his field and get all mucked up with all the mud, all, all the mud and everything. It just happens. And therefore, I have to constantly clean my car. You, you can think of so many different type of illustrations with that. That's what Jesus is talking about here, that if you're going to pursue purity, you're going to have to be washed by him consistently. You're going to have to stay in fellowship with him. You're going to have to, have to walk with him. How does that happen? It involves the word, as mentioned in Ephesians 5, 26, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. It involves prayer, as mentioned in the, in the Lord's Prayer, uh, forgive us of our debts. It involves confession to God and to others, as mentioned in James chapter 5, verse 18. Confess your sins one to another. It involves the weekly rhythms of worship, of coming together and singing songs that focus our eyes and hearts upon God. And in that experience and in this worship experience, it's a time to say, God, wash my heart, make it clean, fresh, and anew, because I've lived in this fallen world, and I've, I've just picked up the impurities from this life. And, and you come back into this sweet fellowship with God. It involves a regular participation in communion to where you understand what Christ did with his body and his blood. This is all the works of grace that God does in our lives to keep our hearts pure. Now, there's a verse that brings all three of these dimensions together for us. It's 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. Here's what it says. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just. There's the legal dimension. To forgive us of our sin, that's the relational dimension. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and that's the personal dimension that is there. And so what I want you, to, want you to see with this is that the gospel boils down to this. Christ not only justifies your sinful heart, not only forgives your sinful heart, but He cleanses your sinful heart consistently. And so uh, here's the first aspect, having a clean heart that comes by the way of the gospel. Here's the second unique, beautiful picture of how to pursue holiness, and that is an undivided heart. <laughs> When Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, He's pointing us to this undivided heart. Purity can only be achieved when the heart is undivided. There's a practical concept of the word pure at its root. A man or woman is blessed when his or her heart is single, when it's focused, when it's whole, when it's united, when it says no to all the other stuff that vies for the affections of our heart. The old King James Version in Matthew chapter 6, verse 22 is very helpful. Here's how it's translated. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, then the whole body shall be full of light. If your eye be single, then the rest of your body is going to experience this light of the gospel flooding through every aspect of your life. The Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard is quoted in this relation to this beatitude oftentimes because he wrote a book under the single title of Purity of Heart is to Will One Thing. Purity of heart is to will one thing, 
And that's exactly what the Lord Jesus is teaching here in the sixth beatitude. So, the opposite of pure heart is an undivided heart. It's a heart that is split. It's a heart that has, has a struggle th that is there. You recall Elijah on Mount Carmel. And he is standing before the people and he is pleading with them not to follow Baal, but to follow God, to follow Jehovah, to follow the Lord. And so here's what he tells the people in verse 21 of 1 Kings 18. He came near the people and he said, Hey, how long are you going to be limping between two opinions? If the Lord is Lord, if the Lord is God, then follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. It's a binary question that he asked them. What he's saying is, look, it's either A or B. It's not A and B. And furthermore, there's not a C or a D. It's either the Lord or it's Baal. We would say it this way. How long are you going to continue compromising in your life as a follower of Christ, where you have one foot in the world and you have one foot in the kingdom and you're struggling between these two, uh, these two opinions and these two truth values that are there and, and you're not flourishing? And what Elijah and what Jesus is doing is saying, where are you going to follow and where are you going to throw your weight behind? Is it going to be with the world or is it going to be with me and my kingdom? So you cannot flourish and you cannot simply be blessed if you're straddling the fence between the two. You might recall John Bunyan in his classic book, Pilgrim's Progress. He had a character called Facing, Mr. Facing Both Ways. That character is one who says, hey, I, I, I like to go this way within the world, but, but I also want to go this way with the kingdom. And you can't do that. It's an either or proposition that he gives to them. This theme runs through the Bible. John uh, in James chapter 4, verse 8, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your heart, you who are double-minded. What's a double-minded person to do? He's to clean his heart. He's to choose this single focus that is there and to pursue that consistently. Psalm chapter 86, verse 11, teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. In other words, God, all, all the stuff that's happening in my life, it's, it's all, my heart's everywhere. My prayer to you is to unite my heart so I'll be able to fear your name. We'd all do well to learn from the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. Paul says, look, I haven't reached this place of perfection yet in my life. I'm still pursuing this. And it's still an ongoing development of my life. But verse 13 says, Brothers, I don't consider myself to taking, having taken hold of it. But one thing I do, this one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, I press forward to what lies ahead. I press forward to the goal for the prize of the upward calling of God, of Christ Jesus in my life. So there's the purity. The purity of pursuing Christ now involves a clean heart, which accomplishes through the gospel. It comes to say, I'm going to have a single heart and pursue him and allow him to be the focus of my life. And when I do, there's a genuine sense of purity that begins to, to just simply saturate my heart. So, so there's the truth statement, blessed are the pure in heart. Here's the outcome. The outcome is they will see God. Now, we talk about in the Sermon on the Mount, the beatitude of an already but not yet kingdom. And you see both of those here in this. The reality is there is an already experience of seeing God, but, but not yet a full understanding of seeing God.
There are two ways that the gospel calls us to see God. First is the future of what's going to take place when we die and go be in His presence. And then there's this present aspect of what's taking place. Here's the future promise, the not yet, the coming. The gospel, we will spend eternity with God in heaven. And, 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 and get this, we will see God. Do you realize that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you will see God when you enter into heaven? Apostle John says, the Apostle John says this way, we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Revelation 22, 3 through 4, the throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face. 1 Corinthians 3, 12, for now we see through a mirror dimly, but then face to face. The only way anyone can ever see God and have any hope of eternity with God throughout heaven is to express faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ for God to transform your heart, to forgive your sins, and to walk with Him in fellowship consistently, singly pursuing Him within in your life. And when you do and you die, you shall stand in heaven and you will see God Himself. It's a glorious, glorious truth that is there. But what about now? And that's where the second promise comes in. Here's the already experience. Because of the gospel, we can see God in this life, though, though not as clearly, though, though, though not as specifically as we're going to see him when we're in heaven. But we have the understanding of seeing Him now. Again, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, For now we see through a mirror dimly. We, we don't have a clear, accurate picture, but, but we get glimpses. We see God. We see Him within our lives. And, and, and when we do, we experience this incredible joy that comes to our hearts. Now, we use the word see to mean that we finally understand like, oh, oh, now I see, or now I get it, or the light has come on. The meaning of these expressions is that we've been illumined and now we understand. The gospel of Jesus Christ transforms our heart. It opens our eyes. It illumines our soul. Once we were blinded by the God of this age that we could not see the glorious light of the gospel. But now, 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, this light has shone into our hearts to give light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. David says it succinctly. He simply says that in your light we see light. That God in your presence and who you are, we now get it. We now understand and now we see it. Now, what we experience is we now experience the beauty and the glory of God after being blind to it for so long. We are no longer spiritually blind towards the things of God. Our souls, once darkened by sin and impurity, are now transformed by God's grace so that we see God's glory everywhere we look. It's like Isaiah said in verse 3 of chapter 6, the whole earth is full of His glory. And so we see God's glory in creation. We see it in His provisions. We see it in redemption. We see it in the church. We see it in protection. We see it in relationships. We see it in the birth of a child. We see it in difficult and suffering ordained for us. We see it even in death itself. God shows up. 
And we see that. Now, we could literally spend the next hour talking about specific application to each one of these categories that I mentioned through here. We could just point out and simply say, here's how I experienced it. But let me just ask you a few questions. Did you see the moon last night? Did you see the moon last night? Oh, my goodness. It was just bright and shining and glorious. I, I hope that as you saw the moon last night and you saw the beauty of the moon in creation that you went, man, I know the guy who did that. I know the God who, who hung the moon in space. And, and there's something in your heart that had this connection that was there. My wife and I <clears throat> traveled out to Colorado. I went through some period of depression because of ministry about four years ago. I worked with a wonderful godly counselor. We were there in January, eight inches of snow, single digits. Everything was dormant. Everything was just just desolate almost at that point, kind of like my soul was at the time. We processed through all the issues that were going on in my heart and my life and in our family. And, uh, and, and we talked about the need for there to be, you know, a death before there can be a resurrection. And, um, and he, he says, you can't see it right now. But he said, he said, right now, in the ground, under all the snow, he said, the seeds that are going to bloom this summer are there. You can't see it, but it's there. He said, I want to, I, I'd love for you to come back out this summer and just drive through the back countries and, and just look at the, at the abundance of the flowers that are now just dormant. And so we scheduled a trip, went back out in, uh, in late July and rented a car, should have rented a Jeep. Uh, we're going over a 10,000-foot uh, mountain pass. Uh, started out paved road. It kept getting more narrow, more narrow. Then it got to be dirt road, and then it got to be the washouts that were there. And on the right-hand side was a 100-foot cliff going down, and the other side was the same thing. And, 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 and my wife is praying earnestly. And uh, <laughs> um, all of a sudden, I take this... I take this detour and I just turn into this into this little side area that goes down. Just freaked her out completely. And I get that. She said, what are you doing? I said, I'm going to look at the flowers. I looked over and there was this field of, of wild flowers. Got out of the car. Just looked at those flowers and worshiped God. Six months ago, you couldn't see it. But now they burst forth. Well, that's what happens when God transforms your heart, transforms your eyes. You begin to see things you've never seen before that were dormant. He came to do that. As a pastor of 45 years, I've, I've done hundreds, probably 600 funerals. And, and I got to tell you, to see God's glory in, in, in a death is amazing. And I mean tragic and hard, but I mean, just to see believers rally around that. I had this one experience one time. I was in a hospice room, and, and this man was dying. The family was there, and I came, and, 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 and we read Scripture. We prayed, and, and at the end of the time, we were all holding hands around his bed. And I prayed something to the effect, you know, you know God's glory, God's comfort, God's grace, and that the Lord be merciful to take him, you know, sooner than later. And said amen. Just as I was saying amen, we heard this, the son-in-law reached down and he said, I think he just passed. Now, this was in the late 1990s, about 1999. Those of you who are old enough to remember Jack Kevorkian, Dr. Death, the one who really propelled euthanasia, uh, quote-unquote, dying of dignity and all that, you know, he'd been arrested uh, <clears throat> for murder in 1999 for an assisted suicide. 
was a real popular name at the time that was going on, and 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 we're still holding hands, and 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 the family, the family looks at me and they said, "You have the Kevorkian gift," and and they were celebrating, they were just praising God because their loved one is now ushered out of this life into the presence of heaven. It was a sad cheer, but it was incredible because of what God did and stepped in and just gave us that moment. The, the benefit to that was when I'd go to make hospital visits from that time on, they'd say, don't pray for me, pastor. <laughs> I, listen, I, <clears throat> I could go on and on and on and tell you stories of what God did <clears throat> in every one of these areas of the miraculous work of God within our lives. <clears throat> I'll just give you one more quick one, and that is the church. I mean, look around. You guys are, are so diverse. You, we all come from different backgrounds. We're all weird. Some of us are more weird than others. I won't point fingers, but the reality is the church is made up of a bunch of broken people, and yet somehow God brings us all together, makes us one, unites our heart together under the flag of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it's a beautiful thing, just like you said, that there's something that happened in your life when you walked in and you experienced, that's the Spirit of God showing to the world of the reality and the validity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, two apparent impossibilities that are made possible through the gospel of Jesus Christ. First, pure heart. Second, seeing God. Both of those are resolved and made possible through the only means, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the challenge this morning is, <clears throat> if you have never believed, if you've never repented, <clears throat> if you've never trusted Christ for your salvation, then your heart is impure. Your heart is a heart of stone. And God wants to give you a new heart <clears throat> through His Son, Jesus Christ. And the way in which that occurs is through what we call salvation. <clears throat> of coming, of, of, of receiving His gift of grace within your life and, and trusting Him <clears throat> to forgive you of all your sins, to give you the new heart as expressed in believer's baptism that we saw this morning. <clears throat> so if you're here today and you've never trusted Christ, repent of your sin, trust Him. We'd love to talk with you more about that. We'd love to share with you how you can have a personal relationship with Him. Second, if you are a believer, there's still a need for you to experience purity within your life. There's still a need for you to have your heart cleansed on an ongoing basis. That too is accomplished through the gospel of Jesus Christ on a continual basis within your life. So you want to test this purity of your heart? Here's the way you test the purity of your heart. <clears throat> uh, the way you test your purity of your heart is found in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8. It says, though you do not see him now, you believe in him, and you are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. The way that you test the purity of your heart is to look at whether or not you're experiencing joy in your heart. If you're not, it's like the red warning light on the dashboard of your cars that says you have an issue. And the issue is, is that <clears throat> your heart is impure. Because if your heart is pure, you're going to be able to see God. You're going to be able to see His beauty. You're going to be able to see His glory. Everywhere that you look, you're going to interpret that as saying, 
I saw the hand of God. I see God. And it wells up with a sense of joy. When your heart is impure, it affects what you see, and you don't see God. Therefore, your heart is not filled with joy. It's filled with anxiety. It's filled with any number of things. But it's not filled with joy. And so the way that you test that is, what's going on with your heart? What's going on with joy in your heart? And if there's no joy there, you don't have a seeing issue. You have a heart issue that you've got to deal with. When I was a boy of nine years old, I got my first pair of glasses. Uh, <clears throat> I, I did the routine sc- uh, screening at school, and, you know, and that, that's where they put you <clears throat> at the, they had the, the chart right there, the scene that, the, with, the, with the letters and different things. It starts with huge, that big old E, you know. Uh, <clears throat> and, and so they said, which way is the E pointing? And I said, what E? I mean, right now, I can't distinguish any of you. I, I, can't, I can't make any of you out. I, you're just blobs that are there with me. And so they sent me to the optometrist. He did the test. He ordered the prescriptions for my glasses. I was fitted for the glasses. I was a boy, <clears throat> about nine years old. And uh, I walked out of the optometrist's office with my glasses. And I walked out into the street. <clears throat> and I started laughing. I started laughing. And my mom says, why are you laughing? I said, Mom, I can see. I said, I can read the sign on the bank half a block down. I can look at the, at the distinguishing features of the leaves on the tree. I can see trash on the, on the road. I, I can see people and their faces coming down the road. And I just laughed. I laughed all the way home, I think. When you come to express faith in Jesus Christ, it is as if you're putting on spectacles for the first time to be able to see clearly. And what happens is it wells up with joy within your heart. And you have this inexpressible, this glorious joy that is there. Not from the first time that you put it on, but consistently. And so as you look at that within your life, test this morning whether or not there's joy that's flooding your heart. If there's not, my suggestion to you is, is there's an issue of impurity within your heart that is occluding your vision to see the beauty and the glory of God. Father, thank you for the hope of the gospel, for the reality of the gospel. Thank you, Father, that is through the gospel that you give us new hearts. <clears throat> you cleanse us, and you wash us, us new, redeem us legally, you walk with us in relationship, and you walk with us personally. Father, we want to worship you in these closing moments, that our hearts would be full of joy, and if there's sin within our lives, may we confess that before you. Thank you for the glorious hope of the gospel, which transforms these two apparently impossibilities into possibilities for us pure heart, seeing God. In the matchless name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.